your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy. For those of you who may be visiting with us, I want to fill you in on the fact that we've been in the book of letter to Timothy for quite some time now. We're getting near the end. We are in chapter 6. And our focus this morning will be on verses 13 to 16. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 993. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, where is God? Two, who was Pontius Pilate? Three, was Jesus afraid of what Pilate could do to him? And four, why should we never be afraid to confess that Jesus is our Lord. First Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 11. This is the word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And you've given us the truth that we need, all the truth we need for our understanding of you and of how to live for you. Who you are and what's required of man. All that we need for faith and life. Lord, as we approach this passage this morning, we pray that you would help us to see clearly what you would have us to see, to hear what you would have us to hear, to receive what you would have us to receive, and give us the grace to respond appropriately to what you'll have to say to us today. And as we move from the reading of your word to the preaching of your word, we pray for a special measure of help from the Holy Spirit. Please help the preacher, and please help all of us who are here this morning as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In some ways, the entire first letter of Paul to Timothy is a charge to this young church leader in Ephesus. It comes from the Apostle Paul. And Paul, over and over again in this short letter, reinforces the charge to Timothy. He's directing him, first of all, how to personally conduct himself as a Christian. So there's that moral part of the letter, that part that has to do with devotion to the God of our salvation. But he's also instructing him how to be 
a good church leader to manage the ministry well that he's been tasked with. Now, Timothy's not unaware of those two things. He's been in the faith since a child, so he understands what it means to live for the Lord, and he understands what the calling of a minister is, but he needs to be reminded. He needs to be reminded again and again. He needs to be encouraged. Some have suggested that Timothy is particularly fearful and timid, and so Paul has all the more reason to keep reinforcing his calling and his trust in the Lord. And so Paul is doing that here at the end of this letter. But it's been a real challenge going through 1 Timothy to see how we distinguish between what's unique to Timothy as a young man back in those days, what's unique to Timothy as a minister of the gospel with leadership responsibility to distinguish that from that which is also applicable to us, to each one of us, whatever our calling in life is. If we're in the faith, there are certainly things in this letter. Well, here's one of the things that certainly is common to all of us. We need encouragement in the faith. All Christians need encouragement in the faith, to keep the faith, to fight the fight of faith. We also need encouragement to serve God well in whatever calling that we have in life because we understand that whatever we do, whatever we're called to, we're to do it all unto the Lord. Now, in our situation, obviously, is somewhat different than Timothy's, but we face regular challenges to our faith. We dealt with some of that last time in detail, but we do deal with challenges to our faith. Soon for most of us, though, in this culture, unlike many of our brothers and sisters in the world, in this culture, we don't normally face persecution. We don't face brutality because of our confession of Christ. Nevertheless, we're challenged and we need to face that with courage. Maybe some of us are timid. And maybe some of us are fearful, like Timothy said to have been. Maybe we're inclined to be discouraged and give up or become lackadaisical in our faith. But we need to be reminded, just as Timothy did throughout the letter, that we need to never give up, to never let up on our pursuit of the faith. Paul begins in our section with a reminder to himself and to Timothy and to us just who we live our lives before. We live in the presence of God. We live in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God. We are to have a constant reminder that we live in the presence of God. Never forgetting that we live in his presence each and every day, that he's the God who sees all things. He's the God who's everywhere. And that should be a great encouragement to every saint. Conversely, that is quite sobering for those who insist on rebelling against him. This passage is for those who are striving to walk with him. Great encouragement for the saints. There's something else going on here, too, with Paul announcing his exhortation comes in the presence of God. He's affirming that what he says... He's accountable for what he says and what he writes to Timothy. I'm writing to you this in the presence of God. 
then Timothy needs to recognize that he's accountable before the God who's everywhere and who sees all things, responsible to respond appropriately to what he reads. And then for us as well, whenever we come to Scripture, and for that matter, all of our lives, we need to always remember that we are in the presence of God all the time. And so we're accountable for what we hear God say. He's the God of life. There is no life outside of him. I think often of what Paul says in his quote in Athens when he's speaking to a bunch of pagan philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being. God is the singular figure, the infinite God, the mighty one, and there's no life outside of him. He's the creator, sustainer of all things. And he holds all things in his hands, great and small. There's no life, there's no existence outside of God. No life outside of him. And yet he's personal. And I think that's one of the great wonders of being a child of God. Is that while we understand that he holds everything in the universe in his hand, that there's no existence outside of what he's created and there's no life outside of what he sustains, he is our personal God who knows us inside and out and he knows our challenges and he knows our temptation and he knows every single cell in our bodies. He knows us perfectly in body and in soul. And so that combination, that merger, is really the sweet spot, isn't it, for a Christian? To say, here I am in my weakness and my frailty, and yet the infinite, almighty, eternal God knows me personally and cares for me intimately. When we begin to lose sight of that, it's when we we start to slip into foolishness and this sense of independence and and therefore ultimately insecurity. But for the Christian, and because Paul is trying to encourage Timothy here, this is meant to encourage the believer that we're in the hands of this one true living almighty God. It gives confidence to face whatever challenges come with the territory of life, but also with the territory of being a Christian. especially if we're facing death. However that might come, he's the Lord of life. He's the one who gives life, and he's ultimately the one, ultimately the one responsible for taking life. Keep that word ultimately in mind. Again, it's meant to inspire believers And in doing so, he encourages Timothy and, therefore, us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, who's gone before us. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He points us to Jesus. Here's what the author of Hebrews says, after citing all the witnesses in chapter 11 of that book. With all those witnesses, we're to keep our eyes fixed on who? On Christ. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the undaunted Christ. When you read the Apostle Paul, it's almost as if he can never get the passion and the cross of Christ out of his mind or off of his heart. Paul said of himself that he preaches Christ crucified. And here he points us to Jesus on the brink of the height of his passion, points us to his trial under Pontius Pilate. And that's where Jesus makes this good confession, and it's a confession that Paul is telling Timothy to share, and again, for us to share. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's what we say in the Apostles' Creed every time we confess it. And there's that general sense where he did suffer in the period of Pontius Pilate under that local rule of Pontius Pilate, but he suffered many indignities at the hands of others, chief priests, the Pharisees, the mockers. Jesus suffered and did not shrink back from his confession, but Paul points us particularly to the incidents with Pilate. I'm not a big fan, frankly, of red-letter editions of the Bible. No offense to anyone. But I will say red-letter Bibles do help to make the words of Jesus jump out at us. And I want us to turn in our Bibles, red-letter or not red-letter, to John chapter 18. As we survey this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Here we find Jesus before this Roman governor, this governor that even threats, threatens Jesus with his power to put him to death should he so choose to do. But also we find Mr. What is Truth, Pilate, sitting in judgment of the truth itself. I'm going to read from my old my old New King James Bible. I say it's my old because it's the one I preached out of for 10 years. But I'm using it now because it's got red letter and it will help me to emphasize what Jesus is saying. So Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been mocked and scorned, many other indignities. By the time we come to John chapter 18, and by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke only give one phrase to Jesus in response to Pilate. But John elaborates more. So John, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And Pilate said to them, 
you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should not bear witness to the truth. That I'm sorry, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried and said, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Continue into 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that, he was the more afraid. And went again to the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? And power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. There is Jesus before Pilate making the good confession. And to kind of summarize it, and we could elaborate a lot more, but summarize it this way that Jesus affirms the truth about himself. About himself, and in a sense, he turns Pilate's own statement back on himself. It is as you say. I am a king. I am a king. 
He tells him the nature of the kingdom. It's not of this world. It's, it's so far beyond and so much mightier than you can ever imagine. And he emphasizes that he is the king of that eternal kingdom. And he explains to Pilate that only those who, who truly hear the truth, who truly have ears to hear what God is saying through his son, will believe. But further, he makes it clear to Pilate that this passion, this brutality, and even, Pilate, your eventual turning me over to die is not of you ultimately. This is all of God. This is all of God. And this is what's necessary for our salvation. The Christ making the testimony before Pilate. And in light of what we see in Jesus... In light of what we see in Jesus, what we see and hear in Christ, we're encouraged to stand fast. In essence, what Paul is saying to Timothy, you have nothing to fear. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Timothy, while you're making that good confession, Christian, when you're making that good confession, make sure that you're doing so in the pursuit of godliness. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just two simple things here. One, remain unstained. In your pursuit of holiness, always seeking the sanctification, the purification of your soul, your mind, your words, your actions in the presence of God. Make that your pursuit. For sure you will fall short. But in the pursuit and your desire and pursuit of holiness, Seek to have a clear conscience always before God. And second, unaccusable. Pursue holiness. You will fall short. But be unaccusable in the eyes of everyone around you. With a clean record against all the accusations of others. Let your godliness be your condemnation, not your sinfulness. When it comes to the world, always be dedicated to the holy life. So Timothy's first calling is as a Christian, then as a minister. The same is true for us. All this in light of who God is. I've already decided this morning that I'm going to wait to really unfold what comes next. Trying to teach myself to slow down a little bit. So we can savor the things that come next. 
But I do want to touch upon just a few things in closing. Because we don't want to miss this when Paul says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always has the appearing of Jesus Christ on his mind. Always. Someone said, Paul never sets dates, but he's constantly aware that God is ever near and that his mind is thick with thoughts of the return of Jesus, just like the Christians ought to be. At Christ's return, the word is actually epiphania, which is epiphany, which simply means appearing, the manifestation of Christ. That second advent of Christ when everyone will see him. And so we can say that we will see him at his coming, constantly aware that he's coming soon in that end times eschatological, eschatological way, that mysterious soon that's been soon since the time Jesus has ascended into heaven. But it's until he comes back or takes us home. coming personally to take you home. When he appears before us, when he brings us into his presence, or I should say when we appear before him and behold his glory. The hymn in Christ alone summarizes this so well. No guilt in life. Let me clarify that. No condemnable guilt in life. We all are sinners. We're guilty. This has to do with our standing before God righteousness. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. What I want to say for next time is mostly this doxology at the end where Paul launches into this description of some of the attributes of God. It's filled with Old Testament references to this God that Paul knows. He's unlike any other God. He's unlike any mortal. For, for today, I just want to draw our attention to one word. Because it gives us confidence in the face of death, no matter how that death will come. We've already seen that God is the God of the living. But in verse 16, who alone has immortality, immortality. He's immortal in an entirely unique way. We know that we have souls that will never die, but we had a beginning. God has no beginning. He has no end. He's immortal. But the encouragement in this passage comes from 
really the root of this word. Athanasia. Athanatos. Thanatos means death. This word simply means without death. There's no dying. There's no dying in God. Literally, deathlessness. And it's that God who's immortal who keeps us so that we don't need to fear that final enemy death. And if we don't need to fear that final enemy death, what do we have to fear? And it all points us to Christ. All points us to Christ. Paul does an unusual thing here at the end, and again, we'll have to come back next week, sorry. Or not next week, it'll actually be a little ways off. But Paul does a very unusual thing here when he starts to describe the person of Christ. And when we think of Christ glorified, sometimes it's a little confusing for us because the pure attributes of the eternal God are matched with the attributes of Christ who still bears human flesh. And that should give every saint great hope for the next life. That this eternal Christ has secured salvation and eternal life for us, even the resurrection of our bodies. Think about how Paul saw Jesus alive long after his death. Think about how the Apostle Paul at one point was caught up into the third heaven and saw things so glorious that he wasn't even at liberty to tell anybody about them. Things to do with Christ. Things to do with eternity. Well, in the end, we need to learn from these things, take courage, stand fast, live for the Lord, to the glory of God. Life is short. Eternity is long. And as we live our life now with the days that we have, we're to remain steadfast as we look to the day when we'll behold his glory in the face of our Redeemer. That one, as we read earlier, that the writer of Hebrews describes, the Jesus that we look to, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, listen and remember he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, in the faith. Your God will keep you, and he calls us to pursue that faith with vigor and thanksgiving to all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord our God, we <clears throat> thank you so much that you have revealed your truth to your people. That you've not left us with that 
dangling question, what is truth? Savior Jesus taught us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that no one comes to you, Father, except through Jesus. We say, we sing, we testify that it is in Christ alone that we have hope and comfort in this life and confidence for the next. And as we persevere in this life, whatever comes to pass, we pray that we would do so fearlessly, knowing that we are solidly and securely in your hands. Confirmed, secured, and shared by our Lord Jesus Christ. Truth of salvation, salvation itself burned into our very souls through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, this morning we praise you and thank you. We glorify your holy name. Amen.